Primex Podcast, delivering you the financial news today. Brought to you by John and Mr. Christmas as we try to figure out what the hell is going on in the financial markets alongside you. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of Primex Podcasts, where I, John, and my co-host, Mr. Christmas, bring you the latest and greatest of the financial markets today. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. A word of advice at the beginning. Please do not consider anything that we discuss or our advice for sincere financial advice. We are in no way experts and we are in no way giving out advice that should be trusted or taken into actual consideration. These are just mind games. Well, well, technically, it's, it's more of a disclaimer that we're not actually certified and qualified individuals, but we are in and out of the financial markets on a pretty much almost day-to-day basis. Um, so we're pretty much like everyone else. I mean, that's hey, listening. we're financial markets enthusiasts. It, we we are, but I mean, isn't anyone else that's listening to our podcast pretty much but, also financial uh, markets enthusiasts or or just general day traders trying to trying to figure out what's going on or trying to pass well, the time? Well, maybe maybe enthusiasts, maybe day traders, or maybe they're just pe- people curious about the financial markets and they want to learn a thing or two, and that's why they tune in. Either way, we got Uncle Sam breathing down our neck, so. Um, that's why we have to make these statements. But uh, tell, tell me something else, John. Um, last episode, we talked about um, the, the, this free lot scheme uh, yeah, yeah. For, in Russia. Um, we, I, I'm afraid uh, we have to retract that a little bit. It's not entirely true what we said. Uh, the fact is that land scheme is only available for Russian citizens. And, and, and that's uh, a Non-Russians. It's, a, it's a big shame, of course, but I mean, you, you know, um, Russia's big, but they don't have infinite free land for everyone out there, right? So um, I'm guessing you would have to uh, become a Russian citizen first before you could apply for that. So um, yeah, I guess so. But that will take, uh, uh, you know, up up to and at least 10 years. So if you want to have, um, you know, if you want to make gains faster than waiting 10 years for an exchange is probably a good way to start, wouldn't you say so, John? I, I would say so, and that's why we're actually talking about the foreign exchange markets here today. Tell me, tell me, John, what is, what is so special about the foreign exchange market? I mean, why not, why not just do stocks? Well, first of all, when, when you're considering any investment or any, any trading opportunity, you're, you're looking for, first of all, um, movements that will gain you more profits, uh, barriers of entry that will allow you to to say start out with small capital because you know for a lot of retail traders out there they're always thinking that i don't have enough money to invest and and that's that's pretty much true with the current situation nowadays i mean who has enough money to invest in anywhere for that matter you have mutual funds always calling you trying to get you to invest with them and then they handle a a portfolio for you based on whatever risk you want to take but basically the the forex uh market the foreign exchange market is is just another place for a bunch of people to kind of invest their money it's a bit more uh volatile say than the stock markets at the same time it's something that continues to move almost 24 hours a day there, there is a closing gap, say, between the American session and the Asian session of one hour, but that doesn't really stop anyone. So basically, the Forex market is one of the most accessible ones. Originally, it started off quite recently, just like almost any market, even the cryptocurrency market. 
just started with a bunch of people saying, hey, I can make money and, and, and trade and, and make a profit on the, the price difference. And that's where the foreign exchange market kind of pretty much came up from. But there's a lot that goes on in the foreign exchange market. There's a lot of things that traders do need to consider before they enter the foreign exchange market, mainly because of the high volatility involved, which means that there's higher risk. And on average, if you if you look at almost any trading platform that is, say, a foreign exchange market broker, right, they'll always have it in their disclaimer where there's 80%, 90% of traders end up failing in the in the foreign exchange market. And there's a reason for that. And we'll, we'll pretty much cover that today. Oh, that's fantastic. Um... I mean, as far as I'm aware, for an exchange market, it's 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 a huge trading place, right? Yeah. I, I recall reading a number somewhere like they have a turnover annually, like over six trillion U.S. dollars. Well, yeah, they, with with the, with the dollar, of course, being like the most traded. Yeah, exactly. Or most interacted with, right? If that's the right term. Well, that's because of our current situation. Ever since the the gold standard kind of went away after the '60s, right? A lot of currencies have been pegged to the U.S. dollar, and then afterwards, we have relied on the U.S. dollar for a majority of transactions. It's it's say, for example, when we used to be able to travel back in the good old days, <laughs> um, you would exchange whatever money you had for U.S. dollars, and then you would land in that country and then exchange it for the local currency. So the the foreign exchange market is also like it it doesn't just take place with retail traders speculating on the markets. It, it takes place with human beings themselves who say, for example, they're foreign workers working in another country. Say, for example, you have a Filipino made or an Indonesian made. They're going to want to move their money from that local currency over back to their home currency to feed their families there. So with that in mind, there's huge foreign currency exchanges that's going on on a day-to-day -day basis. And, and that's why the annual turnover is well over $6 trillion. Yeah, but I mean, it also goes in like in more corporate directions, right? If, if like, let's say, uh, um, um, I don't know, an Indian company wants to purchase a, a US um, location in the United States that probably would want to be paid in dollars. Yeah. It, it, it's exactly um, like so that too. all of a sudden as a company you need to you need to be able to acquire large amounts of dollars where are you going to get them from well on the on the, on the for an exchange market right yeah but how, how would that work i mean i'm uh, they're not probably not gonna like if we stick with the example they're probably not gonna like just go to like some online broker or whatever they probably have a bank yeah right? and and then they will call the, the their banker and say hey you know what i need i need a hundred million dollars uh, what rate can you give me? And this this would already be a transaction in, in terms of foreign exchange, right? Yeah, that is true. And even then, that a lot of our um, global trade kind of happens that way naturally anyways. Say, for example, you want to buy stuff from China. Say if you're living in the U.S., you're going to want to have to change your U.S. dollars to the yuan value. But say, for example, on Alibaba, it's listed in dollars for you. But there's always going to be that, that currency change transaction that occurs when you make a purchase of the product just like your example with some guy from india probably wanting to buy a house in the united states for example there's also going to be a transaction there where they'll have to change the currency except if say that that guy was earning in us dollars anyways then uh, that would defeat the purpose of this conversation but if we talk about global trade as a whole say for example you, you always hear about different contracts between two countries being traded or sold at a value of say a couple billion maybe US dollars sometimes in the local currency or if you talk about Russia and China where they're trading based on their own currency 
where Russia will trade in rubles and China will trade in yuans. So th there's always going to be huge uh, market transactions there. There's also going to be huge market transactions with the central banks itself because the central the central banks itself does basically hold foreign currency reserves, right? At the same time, it also holds metals, commodities, like for example, gold reserves. Russia has been buying up a whole hell of a lot of gold in, in recent years, mainly to just stabilize its own economy and mainly to stabilize its own currency. So yeah, the the forex market so is who huge. Are like, so who are like big players in it? I mean, for obviously reasons, we're like, we have the banks. Yeah. Uh, you have hedge funds, you have, well, like we mentioned beforehand, right? Corporations that want to trade, uh, do international trade, they need currency. But you also have a, a growing number of private uh, uh, investors, so to speak, yeah. people like you and people me. like you and me, they're, they're more classified uh, to as uh, retail investors is what they call them. Retail investors. Yeah. All right. So, so basically, yeah, that the major players that you have in the market are the central banks, the banks, the hedge funds, the corporations, and your day-to-day -day retail investor. And I think today what we can actually talk about more is, uh, towards the perspective of a retail investor because yeah. the, the foreign exchange market has become much more accessible to the retail traders rather than say, for example, like the stock market pretty much heavily relies on a, a market base of hedge funds, especially with the whole entire Robin Hood fiasco. Oh yeah, that well, I mean, we covered that already partially in our last episode, of course. Um, but maybe, maybe just to reiterate, uh, what has been the latest in that case going on? Has there any been been any new development? Uh, I wouldn't say that there's any really new developments, except for um, Robin Hood getting a, a cash injection of one billion dollars. So uh, that's that's just to keep them afloat. So it it does kind of say a lot about their business model as a whole where even though like say the traders bought a stock and that stock's winning it means that somehow robin hood is losing money now a lot of people speculate that maybe it's just robin hood's attachment and relationship with other hedge funds like citadel for example where they might be trying to protect these hedge funds but i i think that at a certain point, you have to consider that there's something fishy going on and, and, and that Robin Hood is losing money out of uh, these winning trades. Well, as much hype as created is probably also as much damage. Um, but back to back, back to the uh, foreign exchange markets, we spoke a lot about the dollars, uh, you know, trading in other currencies. Uh, but you also mentioned what happens if Russia and China, for example, are trading uh, with each other. And that term, I came across the terms major and minor. And as I understand it, that that really defines uh, or is defined right now as a major being the US dollar trading against another currency and a minor being currencies that are normally traded against the dollar trading with each other. Basically, you have a bunch of different currencies, right? Different currency pairs. There's a lot of them out there because you, you can do it both ways. Say, for example, you have the euro US dollar. You can also look at a chart that says dollar euro which would just be the exact inverse. What you need to understand when, when you're talking about currency pairs is first of all, they always come in a pair. You always have one currency versus another currency. Now the first currency is always gonna be the base currency and then the, the second currency is going to be the quote currency. So uh, say for example, one of the most popular major pairs is the Euro US dollar. Now the Euro US dollar is one of the most heavily traded ones, uh, hence, why you get some of the lowest spreads on it, which we'll talk about spreads in a moment. And with the Euro US dollar, what you have is the base currency is the Euro. 
And whatever price that you see on the chart or on a quote, on a ticker, that's the value in US dollars. So that's the value of one euro in US dollars. So say one euro right now is equivalent to uh, 1.2 US dollars. So that's what you'll pretty much see on any given chart. As for miners there, it's not that, that um, it's not these major currencies like the euro, the US dollar or, or the British pound. It's those versus these other more exotic currencies you can you can kind of call them like say for example the yen even though the yen is is quite popular especially amongst uh olden day traders where it used to be called the safe haven currency where everyone would invest in it in, in times of crisis but with the current economic situation of, of japan no one really is investing in the yen anymore and it's it's losing its position as a safe haven but you also have say for example usd ruble that's going to be a minor. Now, if you have uh, currencies that are not part of the major currencies like US dollar, euro, or, or, or British pound in there, then you're going to have something called exotics. Say, for example, uh, ruble yuan. That's going to be exotic as hell. Even, even something that's not heavily traded, like even though it has the US dollar in it, right? US dollar, Hong Kong dollar. It's also going to be more of an exotic pair. This will also in the markets when, when you trade them, it, it will you can see their difference in, in, in terms of spread. Spread is basically um, price differences, and usually it's determined by supply and demand. You'll you'll hear brokers if if you you talk to them like why is the spread so high or why isn't the spread thin enough? Well, it's mainly because and they'll say this it's the liquidity in the market. And when we talk about liquidity in the market, we're talking about supply and demand. So say you go to a currency exchange. They're going to always have two prices on the digital chart that you'll see. You'll have a bid price and you'll have an ask price. A bid price is basically how much they're willing to buy for. An ask price is how much they're willing to sell for. Because remember, any market transaction, any transaction that you make, any sale that you make, it's always willing buyer, willing seller. So it's whether or not you're willing to accept that price. So say, for example, you have, in, in this case, you have euros and you wanted to buy the us dollar right now the 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 rate is 1.2 right what the currency exchange is going to do is they're going to mark up a bit uh they want to make a profit off of the actual exchange rate right so uh, they're going to sell it to you at a lower price so you're going to be buying it at a, a much lower price so when you look at a chart you'll have two lines the bottom line is your bid line bid price line and the top line is the ask price line uh, and the reason for this is mainly because in a market transaction there always needs to be profit so say for example you're walking to that currency exchange you see on the chart that their bid price is 1.19 cool uh they're making 10 cents basically for every euro that they give you and say that now you have us dollars and you want to trade it for euros they're going to have a, a selling price uh for the euro in that case. And again, they're just gonna mark it up a bit because they're selling the euro to you. So they're making a profit on that difference. And this is usually what a spread is. In any market, you will get, in any foreign exchange market and pair and instrument, you will get a spread. And what tends to happen is uh, that you get things like, different brokers will have different spreads, mainly because what they'll end up doing is uh, marking up on that spread just exactly like a currency exchange so at the end of the day a spread is a way for a broker to like that's a, a, essentially their margin then right um 
that's how they make money. It depends. It depends. Brokers do have different types of business models. Say, for example, the broker is nice. I'm not going to say legit, but more towards they're kind of straightforward with you. They're transparent with you. They say, we'll, we'll do straight through processing or STP as, as they call it. And, and a lot of traders will come around to hearing this term like STP, straight through processing, which means that whatever order that you place will go into the broker's system. And then that broker will send your order to the markets. So your order will be filled by whoever's on the other side of the market that's taking the other side of your trade. And this happens because in any transaction, you always have to have someone taking the other side. So say, for example, you're buying your USD for one lot. It means that on the other end of the trade, you're going to have someone that's selling your USD. So you'll, you have that counter kind of transaction. Otherwise, in the event that there isn't a taker on that end, you're trading against your broker. So when you're trading against your broker, what can happen is in that kind of business model, it's if you lose your money, they're making money from your losses, right? But when they're straight through processing, then that's where they actually make their money from the, the spread markup. I see. Um, are there different kinds of spread? I've heard like the term raw spread being thrown around a lot in New York. Um, what is the difference to a normal spread or is that a, the same thing? Okay. Um, basically, you have two types of spread. You have raw spread and you have a spread markup. Raw spread is the spread that a broker will get from its liquidity provider or prime broker. Now, a liquidity provider can literally be any type of institution that is large enough to be able to pool the liquidity of said instrument. Say, for example, in, in a majority of cases, these happen to be banks. Like you'll have Barclays, you'll have Mercury you'll have uh, Deutsche Bank. These banks, what they'll do is they'll purchase all these different assets and instruments, which gives them a pool of instruments for retail traders and brokers underneath them that they're providing liquidity to, to actually exchange. Because what a lot of people feel like when, when they're trading the markets is that they're making money off of thin air, where they open up a position, they don't exactly see what they're buying, they can't feel what they're buying. They can't touch it. It's not like stocks. It, when you buy stocks, you know how many shares you have, right? But in the foreign exchange market, what you are essentially doing is you're buying from the broker who, is, who has gotten this reserve from a liquidity provider. So what happens is that liquidity provider will sell it to the broker. And that's why there's a certain spread. That's the raw spread that is given. And then after that, for the broker to straight through process, a client's trade to the liquidity provider, that's where they'll do a spread markup. And uh, spreads will always continue to vary. Uh, for brokers that, that have fixed spread, which means that the spread doesn't move regardless of how many traders are in the market, regardless of how much volume is being traded, then uh, I, I'm not entirely sure how those brokers make money. But it seems to me like <laughs> they're not going to make much money on, on certain instruments. So... Usually what you'll mostly encounter is variable spreads. So you won't always have a fixed spread. Say, for example, your USD may fluctuate between uh, uh, zero to all the way to 10 points in, in price difference. I see. So, I mean, in a, in a way, then, of course, uh, certain currency pairs are more profitable and certain are less profitable, or at least the margins are higher than because the spread will be more crazy, like with something like uh, Euro USD. Uh, 
they're they're very 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 um small changes right so if, if unless you go in there with a large volume of investment um it's not really going to show i've heard the term cable being thrown around as a nickname for the uh, the pair british pound us dollars yeah are there other uh do you, do you know why it's called cable i'm assuming it's because of the good old days of of that uh connecting internet ethernet cable optic fiber cable between uh the uk and the united states that internet submarine cable almost 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 correct it actually goes it, uh, the term actually goes back to the first telephone cable that was laid between the two countries because the first things that were almost discussed there were of financial nature between london and new york hey so <laughs> you were you were not far off yep just uh, just a few decades too early uh, too late yeah i, I might have um, forgotten that it was are, the but telephone are there are there, are there similar terms uh, there are some terms like uh, used to exist. I've, I've, I've heard of the dragon which is uh, the British pound yen. I, I, I never actually looked into why it's called the dragon, but I'm just going to assume that it's it's because it, when you look at the chart, right, it's usually in consolidation for a while, and then afterwards it takes off in one direction, and there's a huge movement, so it's like riding the dragon. Um, but then again, you could also have... Or because it's so powerful. Or, or maybe it's just because it's it's an Asian currency, and uh, and back in the day they were kind of racist. Yeah, seems maybe a bit like that. No, but the, you know that's 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 interesting um, that you would mention the British pound and yen, and because I mean one one way of you know being able to assess if you're making if you should make a profit a profit or not is you know going long or going short. Um, yeah. But I, I I find myself sometimes a bit confused about what that actually means because I'm either buying or selling. I'm not. How how am I going long or short on currency? You know what I mean? Like how how does that work? Ah, uh, this. It, it's just jargon. I mean, uh, what what one would think when they hear long position is that they're going to stay in the position for a while. Like they're they're thinking of it in terms of time. That's that's usually the mistake that people make. Um, but when you hear about long and short, what you essentially have to 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 remember is that long means a buy position and short means you're selling. So that's why when you hear the the, the terms like I'm going long on this stock or I'm going long on this pair, it means that someone bought. That person bought the the instrument, and then afterwards they're just holding on to it until it reaches their target price, and then they'll exit the market. At the same time, you have short, which means sell. So that's where you hear, "I'm shorting the market. I'm shorting this pair. Hopefully, it'll go down." It, it, it's just so trading. Wait, yeah, okay. So if it's jargon, and if short means sell, then what the hell does short selling mean? <laughs> short because it can't be sell sell. Yeah, it it can't be. Or maybe it does make sense because they're selling things that, that have already been <laughs> sold, right? Yeah. Uh, I guess so, but here, here's the, the the other thing about short selling. It's more of a term that's uh, derived from uh, stocks, from stock trading. You don't really see that in in forex. Actually, you'll you'll mostly see it in in stocks. It's a type of maneuver. It just like everything that is stocks, everything is corporate in nature. So there's always some sort of corporate maneuvering going around, and so short selling is is another method. Uh, of selling a stock. Well, I mean, maybe the most legendary uh, uh, happening, so to say, of short selling in forex was when uh, George Soros bet against the the British pound. I think some forty years ago. In the meantime, I mean, that's that's what put him on the map, right? He he shorted against the British pound. I think. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a whole conversation for itself. So I don't want to go too much into it, but just, you know, just to have mentioned it on the side. If I, if I recall um, correctly, you kind of did mention it in the previous episode. 
And then we did say that. I love mentioning it. <laughs> you did say that. It, it's something for the next episode or, or, or the episode after that. Well, it's, 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 a, it's a bigger topic. We need to build up to it. You can't just uh, give it away. Because it was one man against the state, right? Um, yeah. It, it is and, one man against the state. And, and soon we'll be talking about Elon Musk doing the same thing. <laughs> mm. Yeah, but this time we'll be rooting for him as well. <laughs> um, but uh, that being said, you know... Currencies that are traded often against each other, Euro, Euro USD, USD, British pound. Um, everyone always looks at it like in minuscule detail. Like how, how exactly do people observe these major currencies, for example, or any of those currencies? Like how far, how far deep do we go? Because, I mean, it stops after, in, 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 real, in real physical money, right? Mm. It stops after cents. But in the financial markets and foreign exchange, it goes much further. It, right? it does go much further. I mean, if you look at a majority of currency pairs, they'll go probably up to five decimal places. And uh, in those five decimal places, you'll have units called pips, points, pipettes. Um, and you'll hear this term thrown around a lot. Now... The only reason why we use these terms is just as a uh, form of measurement for profit. So, for example, if you're looking at your USD and you're looking at the very last digit at the end, which is the the fifth decimal place, right? That's going to be referred to most of the time as points or a or a pipette. And the one right before it in the fourth decimal place, that movement will be measured as one pip because pips and pipettes and points they basically count movement you're never going to call it as like one dollar twenty cents and one pip you're not going to call it that that's because it's not an actual unit it's a unit of measurement between a price difference so say for example you enter a trade at 1.200000 and then afterwards it goes up to uh 1.200010. What you'll essentially get is a movement here of one pip. Now, one pip isn't really going to make you a lot of money, mainly because we have to also talk about sizes, volumes, uh, trade volumes, where you've got uh, the standard lot, you've got a mini lot, and you've got a, a micro lot. Um, very rarely do you have anything called a nano lot, which honestly, I've never really heard of a nano lot. But I know that a, a broker like Awanda, for example, since it doesn't trade using MetaTrader 4 units, it, it trades in actual notional volume that you can go half a normal micro lot, which is about 500 units. And what, what exactly is a lot then? Okay. If, if it's a measurement of a trade volume? All right. So basically, um, what you have is for a standard lot, you'll be trading 100,000 units of currency. In a mini lot, you'll be trading 10,000 units of currency. In a micro lot, you'll be trading 1,000 units of currency. So just keep that in mind and, and everything else will always make sense after this. So say, for example, that, again, that, that trade with one pip. If you're, mm. if you're trading... Uh, say 1,000 units, which is a micro lot, you're just going to multiply that 1,000 by that 0 0.0001, which will yield you 0 0.0001 times 1,000 is going to give you only 10 cents. That's that. That sounds rather small. So uh, where 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 does the big money come in? Because like I'm not a multi-billionaire, I'm not a hedge fund, but I, I want to make some money on the financial market, right? Like everyone else, I see I see other people posting about it on Twitter. 
um, I have my 500 books. Yeah. How can I make more than just 10 cents? Well, it all depends on your trade volume. And uh, basically, say when you go to a Forex broker, the options that you will have at your disposal is how much money you're going to deposit and the type of account that you have and also what kind of leverage you're going to get. Now, leverage here is one of the most important things when it comes to trading. What a lot of people mistake leverage for is risk management. They just hear the buzzwords, and, and, but they still never really understand the concept. What leverage is, is that it's money that a broker is going to give to the trader, that they're letting the trader borrow so that they can trade larger volumes. So say, for example, you go to a broker that's, that offers a, a high leverage of one to 1,000. That means for every single dollar that you have in your uh, account, in your trading account, you can multiply that by a thousand. Why? Because each dollar they'll give you a thousand. So say that in your example, you had $500, right? Now, if you multiply that by 1000, what you essentially have is $500,000. Now that's $500,000 of currency that you can trade. So it means that the maximum amount of volume that you can trade based on your leverage is five lots. Because if you remember, one standard lot is 100,000 units, right? And if you remember that the mini lot is 10,000 and a micro lot is 1,000. So say, for example, if you decide to go with a 1 to 100 leverage, that means you'll be getting 100 uh, units of currency for every dollar that you have. So that would mean that you have around 50,000 units of currency that you can trade. So when you have 50,000... So yeah. let's... So if, if we go if we go then to the example with the pip that you mentioned mm -hmm. earlier, right, where I get my 10 cents, how does the situation change now if I have my leverage of 100? If Okay. If you have a leverage of, a, of 100, the maximum volume you can open up is 50,000 units worth of currency. So it means that you can open up a half of a standard lot or you can open up five mini lots for your trade. So say for that, instead of one cent, that, that, that one cent movement, right? That one pip movement, sorry. If, if we go back to, to the um, calculation where you have that one pip, you go 0 0.0001, just multiplied by the amount of volume that you're trading and that suddenly turns into $5. So instead of getting 10 cents because you were trading one micro lot, because you're trading five mini lots, you're getting $5. If you were trading one mini lot, that would have been just $1. So the whole entire game of trading on the foreign exchange markets and trading these types of contracts for differences is for you to trade at a higher volume. And in order to trade at a higher volume, you would have to increase your leverage or increase the amount of money that you have in your balance. So these things in tandem allow you to trade the markets and also trade and earn, potentially earn thousands of dollars and also potentially lose thousands of thousands of dollars. But there is one thing that you need to remark in, in terms of leverage is that uh, many people consider it to be a means of controlling your risk. But the concept that they get is wrong. They think that a lower number, cool, your, your risk isn't that high, you're, you're not going to lose your money. At the end of the day, if you don't know when to exit the market, you're going to end up losing your money. Uh, what leverage allows you to do is it allows you to set limits to your trading. It allows you to make sure that you don't overexpose yourself in a certain position. You don't, and you're able to control yourself. So 
if say you have a one to 100 margin, I mean, I mean one to 100 leverage, you're going to end up basically using less margin. And um, margin basically in these terms is a down payment. Just remember margin as a down payment. Because whenever you want to open up a trade, you're always going to have to put money on the table. It's not free and easy money. So you can't open up unlimited positions. You can't open up unlimited volume. You always have limits that are restricted by how much money you have and how much leverage you have. I see. So at the end of the day, I can actually make more money with the help of this leverage, but it's a, it's, it's a double-edged sword. Yes. Because if I don't pay attention, uh, it, it, uh, I can also get hurt financially speaking. Yep, because remember um, the- Quite hard. And I think a lot of people- um, a, a, a lot of people misunderstand that concept, right? And they get carried away, like you said, right? They think, oh, my risk is secure, whatever. Mm -hmm. It's fine. Um, and that's why then, of course, a lot of traders and brokers will always tell you like, oh, 95% or whatever of all traders fail. Yeah, it's because they're, they're, doing they're, so, they're, they're not right? reading the finer details. I mean, I'm not saying that trading the financial markets, you have to be some sort of mathematical genius, which is the assumption that anyone has whenever they want to trade the market, right? They're like, they're intimidated by it. Let's be honest, a lot of people are intimidated uh, to trade the markets because they're lacking the fundamental knowledge and basics of how to do that. But the reality is, um, if you find good resources and you, and you read about it, you can find out a lot of ways that you can trade and that you can trade with confidence. And it, it, it just all boils down to whether or not those resources are reliable. So when you hear about leverage, what a lot of people do is they, they don't read into it they'll just get they'll just skim through it and then they'll be like okay it's just risk management and basically yeah trading is all about managing your risk but at the end of the day even if you well no risk no fun of course exactly even, say if you just open up a, a volume of uh 10,000 units if the market spikes 200 pips in the wrong direction you're still going to end up losing money and that doesn't matter whether your leverage was 1 to 100 or 1 to 1000 it's just that when your leverage is 1 to 1,000, you can overexpose yourself so that instead of, say, uh, the market having to spike 200 pips, all it had to do was move 20 pips in the wrong direction and you would end up losing the same amount of money that you would have lost having a 10,000 units position. Yikes, tell me about it. I wouldn't want to be in that person's shoes. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the reality of, of, of trading the, the, the foreign exchange market. That's the reason why you have statistics like 80 to 95% of traders end up losing. And it's mainly because they're not taking care of their risks. And while they're not taking care of their risks, they're, it, it means that they're also not getting all the information that they should be getting, which is, say, for example, the over-the-counter rates that's, that's basically uh, going on that, that you're receiving from the broker. What, what are over-the-counter rates? Is, is, is that the, the stuff we see at the, at the, at the emblems then when they, when they show us the, the, the spread? Well... Yeah, pretty much. Uh, when, when you when you think about it, right, you're not actually trading at an exchange. So there's some sort of middleman. Technically, there's there's like two middlemen because there's no actual formal exchange like, say, the New York Stock Exchange, where you have uh, a whole entire trading floor like back in the day. Nowadays, everything's online. So what you're getting is the rate that you're getting from your broker. If, say, you go to a bank and you still wanted to exchange your money, what you're getting based on the rate there, is also called uh, an over-the-counter rate or an OTC. So that's basically what over-the-counter or OTC means. So OTCs is basically the, the standard go-to rate that I'm aware of that I'm entering into uh, before I trigger 
well, I guess any purchasing decision in that matter, right? Yeah. So before, but before I, I do that, I mean, obviously anyone uh, who would want to deal anyway with forex or any stocks for that matter should of course observe uh the graphs how they're how they're developing and what direction and everything and i guess uh, one would be advocating here for some sort of trend stability in some direction uh to be able to bank on it well right? yeah yeah um basically when it comes i mean yeah basically when it comes to trading the trend is your friend i i always like to 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 say that to a lot of people that the trend is your friend but the thing is, a lot of people, here's the problem with trading. There's a lot of emotion that goes into it when, when there shouldn't be any emotion at all. Now, I'm not telling people to, to trade like they're robots because I understand it's your money on the line. It could be your savings, which honestly speaking, that wouldn't be wise. Um, always invest money that, that you have just left over that you can afford to lose. When you're trading, you always want to trade in a way where you're minimizing your risk as much as possible. And, and in order to do that, you're you're trading with the trend now the market's always trend whether it's up down or sideways there's no circles there's no spirals there's no uh wow wee wah who has here and there 360 loop-de-loops yes 360 no scopes <laughs> there, there's none of that um the market always moves in a certain direction that's usually how it goes if a market crashes that's usually something that happens and that that is very rare we we only see market crashes of, of huge scales happening in like the instance of say an in the span of an hour happen like once every maybe what three five years no one really sees that coming anyways and, and that usually wipes out a lot of traders but back to to the trend right a lot of trends whether they're going up they're going down, whether sideways, whether and in in this case the terms would be if they're going up, it's bullish. If they're going down, it's bearish, sideways, consolidation. The market is almost always trending. And it is within these trends that you can find points of entry where you want to enter the market. There's a lot of uh technical analysis that goes on, and honestly, I think we should save that for another episode. But the basics is that if the market is trending bullish you're more than likely going to want to look for an opportunity to buy. So you wait for that dip, then you enter the market, buy and make a profit once the price extends past the previous high, for example. The same goes for a, a bearish trend where you're waiting for that pull back up before you sell so that you can maximize your profit and minimize your risk. So that's basically... Do, do you know, yeah. just wanted to interject because for maybe it's not entirely clear uh, to myself, do you know why it's called bullish and bearish? Goes... To olden days, it's yeah, it's 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 because the bull lift up lift up uh, lifts up its horns. Yeah, and bears go to sleep. Literally, it just holds its high high, and that's why this goes. And the bears go to sleep, and they lower their head, and that's when it goes down. That's that's actually a fantastic way to memorize. That it is a fantastic for those way who to always, memorize. You know, it. get it mixed up like myself. Yeah. Uh, you know, the the ox or the bull stands proud with his head head high held high, and stocks rises, and the bear goes to sleep. Yeah, but I mean. I mean, not the comparison I would have chosen. I think I think a bear could kill a bull any time of the day. But um, yeah, the only way we're going to see these flight fights is on the stock, uh, stock and uh, foreign exchange markets. Definitely, but you also have to take into consideration that the market also does consolidate in a majority of cases. But here's the thing about consolidation: even within consolidation, where where prices are ranging between two levels, right, and it, there's no movement up or down. If you think about markets. Um, 
Have you ever heard of the term fractals? Mm, I want to say my ninth grade mathematics class, but I wasn't paying attention much, honestly. <laughs> okay, basically what fractals are, it, take a snowflake, right? If you take a, a look at a snowflake uh, through a microscope, what you'll see is a certain pattern where the pattern repeats itself even as you keep going to the smaller branches of the, the, the snowflakes, right? So it kind of repeats itself, repeats itself, repeats itself. In a way, if you want to call that, you, you can even call it inception. That's basically what the, what the markets is because you have different time frames that you're, you can look at. You can look at the daily chart. You can look at the four hour chart. You can look at the hourly chart and you can even look as, as fast as a one minute chart. But I, I don't ever recommend that. So when say you're looking at the four hour chart and you, you see that the prices are just trending in consolidation. If you go into the 30 minute chart, for example, what you'll end up probably seeing is that you're seeing a short term kind of trend, whether it's going up or it's going down because it's still consolidating. It's still bouncing in between those ranges. So that's also another opportunity for you to enter the market. The, the lower the time frame you go, you'll see the movements at a minuscule level, uh, but you already know what's kind of going on from a bird's eye perspective. So that way you know whether or not it's kind of bullish or whether or not it's kind of bearish. So you know if you want to sell at that point or you want to buy at that point. That, those are some indicators you can kind of look for. I think that's very good to know. But speaking of trend stability or trends in that matter, uh, I would like to bring up one trend of like at least like last week. Uh, I don't, uh, you, you had told me earlier uh, before we started recording about uh, Elon Musk and Tesla buying a literal fuck ton of bitcoin yeah well 1.5 billion dollars why why an yeah 1.5 billion dollars why why does an electric car company need virtual currency well uh the first thing that always comes to mind is uh tax evasion and money laundering i mean technically <laughs> cryptocurrencies aren't actually a regulated market so there's nothing really stopping anyone from moving their money from say one country to another and avoiding taxes in that way. So cryptocurrency is a great way to do that. I mean, if you think about Bitcoin's origins, right? Bitcoin's origins kind of started off on the black market, on the deep web. If you wanted to buy... I thought it was about ordering pizza. <laughs> Unfortunately, I, I have no idea which vendor would accept Bitcoin for pizza at the moment. No, that's that's that that's a thing. Uh, really? I'll, 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 I'll pull it up for you. Yeah, yeah. But like the first the first official purchase was done by ordering a pizza. All right. Because apparently some 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 pizzeria in the states like heard about it and thought it was a cool marketing like gag to like get people to buy more pizza. Well, and then somebody had like purchased a pizza there. That was like a big big thing back then. I remember reading about it, but. Um, Hmm. Let me, that's uh, that's that's interesting. Let me, let me pull that up. <laughs> that's that's actually really interesting. But but based on what I've known about Bitcoin is that it it started off in a more nefarious light with the with the black market when you had say for example uh, the old Silk Road where if you went to the deep web you went to the old the the Silk Road you would find tons of different drugs available and usually people made those purchases in purchases in Bitcoin mainly because First of all, it's untraceable. You don't have to do any form of KYC, which is know your customer, meaning you don't have to submit any identification documents or proof of address documents. So it's it's like being off the grid in that sense. But cryptocurrency has come a long, long way from those days. Nowadays, you do have certain markets where you do have to go through that kind of process. There are still markets where you don't have to go through those processes. Like a lot of wallets, you don't 
it doesn't require you to do KYC, but exchanges usually do it require you to do some KYC, even though they're technically not really regulated by anything in, in a majority of cases. But some governments have started to kind of come around to regulating it because they're seeing the value in it. And at the end of the day, it's just the intrinsic value that human beings put on a certain thing. Well, I mean, ultimately, there's no difference between a dollar and a Bitcoin or a Dogecoin, for that matter. It's just the trust people place in it, right? Yeah. Um, but speaking of it, I actually, I actually did pull it up. And it, it apparently it is like the, the, the first recorded uh, real world transaction of Bitcoin. I'm quoting this off of the, the coinrepublic.com. And they say that uh, it's apparently happened 10 years ago. No one's really too sure. And that some uh, Laszlo Hanich and Jeremy uh, Sturdivant um, became like the lead characters in the stories. Uh, Jeremy was uh, actually working working for Papa John's in the in the US, and this uh, Laszlo mm -hmm. had said on some channels that he was willing to pay ten thousand Bitcoin for two pizzas. Yeah, and this was you know back then back then when Bitcoins were like cents on the dollar. Um, and apparently when he did trade it, uh, like Bitcoin, uh, the 10,000 Bitcoin were roughly worth about $41. Uh, and nowadays, well, I mean, whenever this article was written, it was $71 million. So <laughs> if, the, if, the, if, the, if the Papa John's guys uh, stuck to the 10,000 Bitcoin, he, he'll be a very happy, ma happy man and uh, can afford a lot of pizza franchises, is all I'm saying. So it can go either way. Uh, you, can, you can either um, facilitate your daily, um, your daily life and make it easier. Or you can also um, really go over to the dark side, so to speak, and uh, do some really shady stuff with your cryptocurrency. But I mean, still interesting that Elon uh, would like publicly announce it like that. Um, I guess, I'm guessing like with this idea of like, you know, bringing life to Mars, he sees cryptocurrency as like the currency that would be used on Mars. Yeah, be mainly because it's, it's easy to make a transaction. All it requires, because everything's on a blockchain, right? So it means that every piece of information is backed up onto every device that it's connected to. So it means that when I make a transaction to someone else, uh, say in Bitcoin, that data is recorded and that data is copied across other devices that he may or may not make transactions to. So you will always be able to have that record, but no one will, st but no one will know who owns that wallet or who sent it to who. And right now in, in the great day and age of, of, uh, people fighting for their privacy, that's one of the major benefits of uh, cryptocurrency in general. And the fast transaction is also one of the major reasons because you don't have to move money from one place to another. Like if you think about it from a bank's perspective, if I said from Gazprom Bank, I wired you 50,000 US dollars to say Deutsche Bank, you'll receive $50,000, but in reality, where's the actual money? Is, is Gazprom physically going to pick up $50,000 and mail it over to, to Gazprom? I mean, not Gazprom, to Deutsche Bank? So there's something there, no, of right? of course not. <laughs> like, it's already digitalized. It's already there. It's already there. It's it's just, at the end of the day, the, the, the financial institutions that be, they have control over the actual currencies, and that's why they fear the cryptocurrencies, of course. But as everything with digitalization, it's, a, it's an adapt-or-die world out there. So either... Uh, the financial institutions, the financial markets, the central banks, they will figure out a way how to either get along with cryptocurrency or um, it can it, or it can go sideways. Yeah. And, in, and I, I very many. I think we're ways, in a transitioning point now. Like if you if you look at it, large institutions are now also getting into uh, crypto and I can see them soon enough going into Dogecoin because if you look at Dogecoin, Elon Musk is, is propping it up. 
uh, a bunch of other celebrities after Elon Musk went into it. They're all like, ah, oh, crap, if Elon Musk keeps saying this, it's going to go up. So the market sentiment there, there is, it, it's like a lot of people are probably going to start buying Dogecoin and we might actually see it rise kind of like Bitcoin is right now. A, fr a friend of mine had pointed out that what if Elon had just bought like a nominal sum amount, nominal lot, let's call it that, right, of, Bit of Dogecoin, and then he, he knows he just has to tweet about it and the value will increase already 20-fold. And then he sells his shares, makes a nice profit for Tesla. Well. And then reinvests it in, in, in Bitcoin and then says, yeah, I'm buying Bitcoin. And then the value shoots up again. And then he doesn't actually have to manufacture cars anymore to make a profit. And he can <laughs> focus entirely on creating the better world that he's in. I mean, but that, that that's one way that, of seeing that's it. That's what you call market manipulation. And uh, if I'm not mistaken, he can face jail time for that. Yeah, but like, how's, how's one guy... I mean, uh, didn't the uh, 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 who who is it the the SEC didn't they investigate him already after he like said that uh, he tweeted like was it last year or two years ago he was like yeah t uh, Tesla stock is overrated or overpriced was it yeah and it people started selling it immediately because they were like oh something's up but he just wanted to buy back shares <laughs> for his own company exactly so and he's, I mean he still got away with it uh, yeah but but it's still blatant market manipulation and. It, if say uh, he had a friend in on it, that would all, that would just be constituted as insider trading. No, exactly. But yeah, I'm glad that we had this talk today on the foreign exchange market. It's uh, there. There's a lot to actually talk about it, and I'm pretty sure that we will cover it a, a lot of times in the upcoming episodes. But this is just to help. Uh, yeah, I feel much more confident yeah. now that I know these uh, these important uh, terms. Yeah, you, before getting into and anything, you always have to it, learn the jargon and. Learning the jargon is usually the hard part. After that, it's just moving because sailing. knowing, <laughs> because knowing is half the battle. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, thanks a lot to everyone who is listening in to this podcast and this episode. If you like us, please do follow us and subscribe to our podcast so that you don't miss out when we come up with another episode, which should be next week, right? next week hopefully Ho the latest <laughs> hopefully hopefully if the world doesn't end it'll be next week so until next time i'm john and this and don't forget to turn on the notifications and i'm mr christmas yes and this is mr christmas and this is us signing off and we'll see you guys again next week